Now join with me in bowing your head and asking for the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your grace and your mercy, as it is promised in your word, that it's new every morning would now refresh us on this Lord's day. Father, you know that this has been quite a chaotic season, and I'm sure this week was no different. And Father, we pray that even in the midst of all the turmoil and all the hardships and the challenges that we have no choice but to face, that we would also remember to make the conscious choice to trust in you, to make sure that our hope is settled upon you and on no one or nothing else. Father, we look to you, for we know there is no one, there is no thing, there is no power that can give us the peace and the hope and most importantly, the assurance of love that only you can give to us. And so, Father, we pray that you will bless us now as your church has gathered together as we sit at your feet, that you would speak to us, and through your powerful words, well, not only would we be refreshed, but we would be renewed in our commitment, in our faith in you, in our hope in you, and most of all, in our settledness of your love for us through Jesus Christ. For we pray all these things in his holy name, amen and amen. Okay, so um, we're continuing our sermon series entitled, The Way We Worship. And the whole point of this series is talking about why we do what we do, the way we do it in the context of Sunday worship. And the hope of this series is that as you understand the various components of what we do as part of our worship to God, not only would you be better educated, but that you would be enriched and therefore able to better excel in giving your proper worship to God in the context of the gathered Lord's Day. And today we come to a section of worship that is known as baptism. Baptism. Now, if you're here today, uh, not a Christian, you're investigating the Christian faith, you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, I have no idea what baptism is. Well, you know what? You're in good company because it turns out a lot of Christians don't know what baptism is. And that's not a dig for those of you who grew up going to church or those of you who have been baptized. But let's be brutally honest. When most Christians think about baptism, including their own or even their child's, we tend to reduce it to such a sentimental thing. Something that we just want to do to say that was part of our personal spiritual milestone that we can celebrate and nothing more. And because we think this way, we tend to assume that baptism has no real relevance in terms of us living out a deeply committed Christian life. But I'm here to tell you right now that is absolutely wrong. And you know why? Because when the resurrected Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven, he gave this final command to his followers that went like this, go and make disciples of all nations. And do you remember what he said right after that in order for us to follow that command? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. According to our King, our Jesus, baptism is very, very important to him. So important to him that throughout the history of the church, we have identified baptism as one of the ordinances of God. The ordinances of God. Now, that word ordinance is just a fancy word that means divine command and divine law. According to our God, according to our scriptures, according to our tradition, baptism is such a significant, a very important, important part of our worship to the Lord and therefore part of our Christian life. And the question is, why is that? 
Well, that's what we're going to answer today as we take a look at this passage in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, because here the Apostle Paul is going to help explain to us the significance of baptism and how it should impact in us living a deeply, faithfully rich, obedient Christian life. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today about baptism. First, we're going to talk about the symbol of baptism the symbol of baptism. Then we're going to talk about the hope of baptism. And then we're going to end it with the love of baptism, the symbol, the hope, and finally, the love of baptism. So let's begin with the first point, the symbol of baptism. Now, in order to understand this passage of Romans chapter 6, you have to know a little bit about the background of what's going on. So follow along. The Apostle Paul, the person who wrote the book of Romans, he had a lot of critics, I mean, a lot of critics. And because he had a lot of critics, he had to deal with a lot of criticism. And the biggest criticism that he had to contend with was his critics' arguments that his understanding of the gospel, his quote-unquote version of the gospel, promoted what they call licentiousness. Licentiousness, and that's just a fancy term to refer to as a license to sin, a free-for-all just to go in and indulge in every possible sin. You see, their argument kind of went like this. Paul... You tell people that God loves them, that God blesses them, that God is in relationship with them, not because of how they live their life, but only because of how Jesus lived his life. You have that fancy phrase. What do you call it, Paul? What, what? Justification by faith alone? Here's the problem with that, Paul. If it is true that the only reason why God loves a person, blesses a person, and is in relationship with them because of how how Jesus lived his life, That would mean it doesn't matter how they live their life. They can break every command in Scripture. They can indulge in every sin. They can live in active rebellion. And they can be so confident that God will still love them. God will still bless them. God will still be in relationship because, as you say, it's all on Jesus. No, Paul. No, 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 no. Your gospel promotes a license to sin. You're giving people a free pass just to go ahead and sin. And they don't have to worry about living a conscious but free, obedient life. That is wrong. That is their argument. That is their criticism. Now listen to how Paul quickly responds to it when he says in verse 2, what does he say? By no means, or as some translation puts it, may it never be. Paul is on the defense here, and he's not simply defending himself. He is defending his gospel. Because as far as he is concerned, his gospel by no means promote a license to sin far from it. And to segue his defense, he introduces an interesting phrase for us in verse 2 that is so pivotal for us to understand. It's the phrase that goes like this. We died to sin. We died to sin. We died to sin. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, here we're going to see in just a moment, in the context of Paul defending his gospel against his critics, he is going to show us what baptism means, and more specifically, what baptism symbolizes. See if you can follow along. Read again with me verse 3, where Paul writes this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The key phrase I want you to focus on is the one that goes like this, baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into Christ Jesus. In that little phrase, Paul is telling us what baptism symbolizes. And you know what it is? It's our union with Christ. Let me say this again. According to Paul, our baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. Now, in order for you to help you, in order to help you understand what that means, 
think of it this way. Think of baptism like you would a wedding ring, okay? Think of baptism as like a wedding ring. And what's a wedding ring? A wedding ring is a symbol. A symbol of what? It's a symbol of the union that the person who's wearing it has with their spouse and what their spouse has with them, right? In other words, a person who wears this symbol upon them is telling the world that someone specifically belongs to them and that person specifically belongs to that person. And Christian, that's essentially what your baptism means. When a Christian gets baptized at church by a pastor, they are communicating to the world that they are united to Jesus Christ to where they have an unbreakable bond to where they are uniquely Jesus's and Jesus is uniquely theirs. Now, when you grasp that, then you understand why the New Testament puts so much emphasis, puts so much importance on the significance of baptism. Because think of it this way. For a person who considers themselves a Christian and yet never gets baptized, that is just as messed up, that is just as wicked as a married man refusing to put on his wedding band. It's dishonest, it's disgraceful, and it's deceitful. Christian, you need to understand that when you got baptized, you are communicating to the world, to the church, and most importantly, to God, that you are committed to him as much as he is committed to you because that's what baptism is. It is a symbol of our union with Jesus Christ, okay? Now, it's at this point, you might be wondering, well, Paul, excuse me, Pastor John, I'm not Paul, Pastor John, I hear what you're saying, and I hear the argument that Paul is making, but How does this help Paul in actively going against the critics who claim that his gospel promotes a license to sin? How does this understanding of baptism explain that weird phrase that he introduces in verse 2 of being dead to sin, that we died to sin? Well, in order to answer that question, I have to prolong this analogy I introduce of marriage, okay? So please bear with me. Um, When two people get married, something happens, right? Something changes. What changes? Their status changes, right? I mean, we know this. I mean, we say certain expressions all the time that express that we recognize that a status change has happened to people who got married. For example, when we hear that a friend of ours or someone that we admire or maybe someone we're attracted to got married, what do we say? Oh, man, Mark just got married last week. Guess he's off the market now. Oh, my goodness. Wow, Sarah just got married yesterday. Darn, she's off the market. She is, guys, all right? What do we mean when we say that phrase? What do we mean when someone, quote-unquote, is off the market? We are saying that because of their union with their new spouse, they are no longer a viable option in terms of a relationship with other single people. They are now cut off from the land of bachelors and bachelorettes, right? It's as if they are functionally dead. So you single, godly men, if you ever come to our church and you visit us, and you happen to stumble upon a gorgeous, beautiful woman, which we have a lot of, right? And you're thinking to yourself, wow, she is ravishing. She is amazing. I want to be with her. But to your dismay, you see her wearing one of these. Sorry, it just ain't going to happen, all right? The chances of you being with that person in a way that is God-pleasing and God-honoring is a dead chance, is a dead chance, okay? And when I say dead chance, I really mean dead chance. The possibility of something like that happening with God's approval is at the same level of a dead person going up from the grave, going to Starbucks, ordering a latte, and drinking it. It's just not going to happen. 
And Christian, that is also true when you are baptized, when you are united to Jesus in your relationship to sin. You see, when you are united to Jesus, your status has changed to where it affects your relationship to sin. It changes your relationship to sin. You know what that change is? You are free from sin. You are free from the power and the enslaving dominance of sin. Now, of course, it is possible for a Christian to sin, and Christians sin all the time, but it doesn't have to be. You see, by virtue of your union with Jesus, you now have a resource, you now have a power that you didn't have before you were united to Jesus. You have now the ability to say no to sin, to turn away from sin, and to not give in to the desire for sin. You see? Think of it this way. Imagine a very poor person is so impoverished that the only thing he can afford to eat is dog food. Okay? That's all he can eat. His status, in this case, his financial status, makes it to where he is enslaved to eat nothing but dog food. But then let's say that this person gets married to a very, very lucrative, rich woman. Okay? Now his status has changed. By virtue of his union to his spouse, his financial status has changed to where now he is not bound to eat that dog food. He is not enslaved to eat it. He can turn away. He can now turn to something else, which is good, healthy human food. Now, it's possible for this old, you know, formerly impoverished person to eat dog food again, but it's inconsistent to his status, you see? And that same principle applies to you, that when you are a Christian, when you are truly united into Jesus, when you are baptized into Jesus, you now have a resource, you now have an ability to overcome the power of sin. This is what makes the gospel so powerful. Not only does it give us the forgiveness of sin, it also gives us the power to overcome sin. Paul has just refuted his critics. He has just showed that his gospel does not promote a license to sin. It provides a power to overcome sin. You see? That is the truth of Paul's gospel and how he understands the significance of baptism now here's what's so sad many christians today maybe some of you here or maybe some of you watching you will say you agree with paul's gospel that you even believe it and that you even agree with his understanding of baptism and yet when you think about how you're living your life it's as if you agree with paul's critics instead of paul because the honest truth of the matter is for many of us we eat spiritual dog food We give in and accept the cheap imitation to the pleasures of sin rather than enjoying and growing in the great delights of living a holy and obedient life. We say we agree with the baptism of Paul, which is the baptism of Jesus, and yet we seem to agree with the way we live to the criticisms of Paul. And I'm sure many of you at one time throughout your Christian life, you've wondered, why am I like this? Why is it that I live inconsistently to my baptism? Even though I really do believe this gospel, even though I do know I've been baptized the way I should have been, pastor, can you help me understand why am I living inconsistently to what my baptism says? Well, let me explain that for you by going to my next point, the hope of baptism. Have you ever wondered why we use water whenever we baptize someone? Why is water employed in the ceremony of baptism, whether it's dunking a person in a pool of water or just splashing water from a bowl? Why do we use water in the context of baptism? 
Well, if you ever read the Bible carefully, you can easily discern the answer. Because throughout the pages of Scripture, we see water as a frequent instrument of death. Yeah, water is frequently used in Scripture for death. You don't believe me? Here's some examples. You guys remember what happened to the Egyptian army as they were pursuing Moses and the people of Israel as they were escaping during the Exodus? The entire army drowned, right? They got covered over by the Red Sea. Do you guys happen to remember what happened when all of humanity is living in active rebellion and debauchery against God? A worldwide flood comes upon everything and everyone, killing them all except for one man, Noah, and his family, and a couple of animals. Well, probably a lot of animals, but in couplet pairs. All throughout Scripture, we see this idea of water being synonymous with death. And that's why we use water. Because when a person gets baptized, we are symbolizing that they are now dead. Specifically, that they are dead with Jesus. Or as Paul puts it in verse 4, they are buried with Jesus. You died when you got baptized. Now, that just sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds morbid. It sounds confusing. Because after all, when we ever have a baptism here, which we quite often do, Right? It's a joyous occasion. It's a celebration. We have special guests. We have special food. The food's always good, by the way, whenever we get a good baptism. Right? And so we wonder, why does Paul juxtapose something so dark, so morbid as death over something that should be a joyous occasion? Well, if you read our passage more carefully, you realize that Paul is not being morbid at all. Actually, he's not even focusing on death. He's focusing on what death points to or why we die confused read with me verse 4 says this we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life here paul tells us that there is a powerful hope attached to your baptism attached to your death he calls it the newness of life Now, what in the world is this newness of life? Simply put, it's the hope that one day you are going to see face-to-face Jesus Christ, the one to whom you are united to. You are going to have the hope of one day seeing and experiencing the consummation of your union with Christ. Theologians have a very technical term for it. It's called the eschatological hope of consummated glory. Say that ten times. The eschatological hope of consummated glory glory that's the hope paul is referring to and it's this hope according to paul that is so precious that is so priceless that it's worth giving up anything forsaking anyone sacrificing all including your own very life if necessary in order to have this hope realized think of it this way another marriage illustration when two people are facing each other during the wedding ceremony which is usually when they're giving their vows chances are They're not depressed because they're thinking about how they're never going to have another boyfriend or girlfriend after that, right? I've witnessed many, many couples when I married them. That's not what they're expressing. When I see couples looking at each other, I know exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking with hope. You know what they're hoping? They're hoping in the experience that they're going to have the next time they're going to see each other face to face. Because the next time they're going to see each other face to face is later that night in their marriage bed where they are going to consummate their marriage. 
experiencing one of the most glorious, most beautiful experiences that we could ever have that God has given to us as a blessing, right? That's consummated hope. But here's the thing. That couple will never have that hope pulsating in their hearts until they're first convinced that hope is worth giving up everything, even dying for it, right? And I don't just mean literally dying, but dying to other things, to other people. Yes, maybe other possible lovers, but maybe to in-laws, parents, jobs that you're having to give up in order to be married to this person, dreams that you had in your single years that you know you can't hold on to if you want to be with this person. You have this conviction that this hope that I have in being united to this person is so worth it that I'm willing to put to death, to die to those things. Because I am confident that this hope that I have with this person by virtue of my union with them is so worth it. Christian, that is the hope of baptism. That is the hope we must have as we are being baptized or have been baptized into Christ Jesus. It's a hope that says I am willing to put to death anything, anyone, including my own life, in order to hold on to this hope and have it realized. Back in the days of the early church, there was a church father by the name of Tertullian who once said these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that phrase is that the church is only going to thrive when the members of the church live out the hope of this baptism, where they are convinced that it's worth giving up everything, forsaking everyone, including themselves and their lives. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you that in order for you to be a true Christian, that you have to basically move to Saudi Arabia or move somewhere to some parts of northern Africa and be a missionary at the risk of dying for your faith, okay? I'm not saying that at all. But I do find it interesting that when you compare the convictions of the early Christians to the convictions of Christians today evidenced by how they live, it's so startling how different it is. The early Christians, they knew how to have hope in their baptism, evidenced by how starkly different they lived their lives. Early Christians lived faithful, monogamous lives while their pagan counterparts had people visiting prostitutes, having multiple lovers, having one-night stands here and there. Early Christians gave up their material possessions so that they can raise support to feed widows and orphans in the church while their pagan counterparts kicked out their elderly parents or threw out their unwanted babies to die on the fields. They knew what it meant to be baptized and they constantly had it in remembrance by the hope that they lived by that was attached to their baptism. But yet you fast forward today to Christians now and you compare how they are to their non-Christian peers, it's virtually no different. When you look at the ways of racism, materialism, sexual lifestyle, it just seems as if Christians have lost hope in the baptism that they have received by their baptism. And as a result, we have so many Christians unwilling to put to death certain things that are called for in order for this hope to be theirs. They're not going to put to death their dreams of financial prosperity. They're not going to give up their desire for comfort at all cost, they're not going to forsake even certain kinds of pleasures and, and recreations because it just seems so hard to say no to. And as a result, we have Christians 
who eat spiritual dog food all the time. We have lost our hope in baptism. And the question that we must, must answer is, how can we get it back? Well, there is a way that Paul shows us. And this leads me to my final point, the love of baptism. You know, all throughout my pastoral career, even when I was a single pastor, I had many single people come up to me, ask this question, uh, Pastor John, how do you know that you are going to marry the right person? Or how do you know that you uh, should marry a certain person as the right person for you to marry? And depending on where I was in my life, in my spiritual maturity, in my own spiritual development, I said different things. When I was young and idealistic, I would say this to people, listen, don't marry someone who you can just live with. Marry someone who you can't live without. When I got a little bit older, but a lot more jaded, I said this, listen, don't try to marry someone you can't live without because they don't exist. Just marry anyone, anyone who you can just live with. A little bit later, when I got a little bit more practical, I said this, look, all marriage requires work, okay, all marriage. Just marry someone who requires the least amount of work, and you'll be fine. Now, today, what I tell people, I say this, look. I always say look at the very beginning, look. Don't marry someone who you can't live without. Don't marry someone who you can live with. Don't marry someone who gives you the least amount of work. Marry someone who you know you will not confuse them as your Jesus. Marry someone who you know that you will not see them as your own personal savior. And the reason why I say that is because I've learned over the years that no earthly spouse will love you like Jesus. And not just spouses. No earthly parent, no earthly children, no earthly group of friends, no pastor, no president will love you the way you need to be loved because no sinner is capable of loving you the way you need to be loved the most. Do you know how you and I need to be loved the most? We need to be loved with a redeeming love, the love of a redeemer. And what is the love of a redeemer? A love of a redeemer is someone who loves you to the point that they're willing to die for you, which is what our Jesus, the redeemer, has done for us. Now, I know some of you recently married, you newlyweds in here, you want to push back. Like, PJ, speak for yourself. I love my man. I love my woman. I'm willing to die for my wife. I'm willing to die for my husband. And I'm sure you are. And bravo if you are. But let me ask you, are you still willing to die for that spouse if they're constantly cheating on you, if they're constantly unfaithful to you? If they're always sleeping around to the point where they don't even hide it anymore, they don't feel guilty, they don't even ask for forgiveness, or if they do ask for forgiveness, every time you give them forgiveness, they go right back into cheating, would you still die for that spouse? That's what our Jesus did. This is what is so amazing about the gospel of Paul, which is really the gospel of Jesus. The gospel tells us that our God loves us so much that he came into the world in human form as a mortal as Jesus Christ so that he could die the death you and I deserved. And here's what's so crazy. He died for you when you and I were not worth dying for. He died for those who are not willing to die for him. He forsook himself when we are not willing to forsake anything for him. And here's what's even more astounding. 
The death that Jesus died for us wasn't even a glorious death. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you know, Captain America facing Thanos, even though he's in the face of the, you know, dying this glorious death full of valor. Jesus died the most degrading, debilitating, humiliating death. And he did all of that for us because he loves us. That, my friends, is the love of baptism. The love of baptism. And when you understand that love, and more importantly, when you've experienced that love, something changes inside of you because something is created. And you know what that is? The creation of hope. The creation of hope, the hope of baptism. A hope that is so palatable, a hope that is so priceless, a hope that is so precious that you say, I am willing in response to give up anything even myself, so that I can have this hope consummated. I can have this hope realized. This, my friends, is how you remember the gospel. This is how you cultivate the hope of baptism. I don't know how long it's been since some of you guys have been baptized, but I wonder, do you ever go back and reminisce? Every now and then as a father, I will go back and watch the videos of the moment that my children were born. I mean, I don't film the actual moment, but minutes after, for all of them, Kara, Judah, Leah, Selah, Josiah, I, I just adore that moment. You know why? Because every time I watch that moment of birth, of new life, it changes me more and more because it reminds me again and again of who I am to be in life of my connection to this person. I wonder, do you do that on the day in which your relationship with your God, with Jesus, was birthed? Do you ever go back and reminisce on your baptism? Because I assure you, if you do, you will be changed again and again because you're going to be reminded more and more of the hope that you have in Jesus. Baptism is not some silly sentimental thing that you do it and then forget it, never to be reminded of again. It's something you have to always go back to because it has power to make you more and more aware of the hope that you have because of your union with Christ. When was the last time you went back and remembered the greatest day that Jesus had with you when he made you yours? and you belong to him. Please do not minimize this thing. Please do not forget. And remember that part of what it means to worship God is to reminisce and to rejoice by constantly being grateful in, remind, in remembrance of this glorious thing that you have received from him known as baptism. For then you will live a life of true transformation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember these words, not because they come from me, but because of what it conveys from you. You are the glorious one, the God of our hope, the God of faith, and most of all, the God of love. Father, forgive us for when we have minimized, when we have cheapened this baptism by cheapening your grace, minimizing your gospel, using it as a license to sin, 
agreeing with the critics who are wrong about the gospel that you entrusted to your servant Paul and so many others. Father, we pray instead that we would be people who would truly live transformed lives, no longer settling for spiritual dog food, but instead feeding ourselves with the riches of heaven so that we may be strengthened as people of faithful, loving obedience that gushes out hope to the people around us. Father, we need you to remind us of the significance of what it means to be united to your son, Jesus. Help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.